So on Thursday nights this semester, we've been looking at the book of Exodus. And we've entitled this series, The Never-Ending Story. I heard uh, Pastor Tim Keller say this one time. He said, when Christians look back on their lives, they see God telling them about himself. When Christians look back on their lives, they see God telling them about himself. And he goes on to put it another way. He says it like this. A Christian is one who looks at any event in his life and says, the main business of this event is for me to know God. See, if you know that your life is about and the way that God has ordained and orchestrated your life, if that's about you knowing him, then it means that you can look at any circumstance and event in your life and say, the main business of this thing is for me to know God better. And this is why I entitled this, uh, this series The Never-Ending Story as we've gone through the book of Exodus. This is a salvation story about a God who continually reveals himself uh, unto the end of his people knowing who he is and what he does. Therefore, it's a story that endures for the ages. And in this story, what I hope you've continued to see is that we can find our story in it. And that's all good and well, and y'all agree with me, and you nod your heads along with that, until we get a story like tonight, a story of judgment, a story of the plagues, a story of God's violent, destructive wrath against an ancient king and his people. And you look at that story and go, okay, yeah, but how does that have anything to do with me? And so tonight, we're going um, to read the whole plague narrative. It's going to take us about 30 minutes. I'm just joking. Um, We're going to read a little snippet here to get an overview of what is, if we're going to look for an enduring message from a story of judgment, what is it? So let's read here. We're going to begin in chapter 7 and then we'll jump to chapter 9. First 13 verses of Exodus chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, see that I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Skipping to chapter 9, starting in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself 
and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. So if we are those people who believe that in anything, the main business is for us to know God, where do we find it in a story like the plagues? I want to look at least three areas. I think we can find it. The sovereignty of God, the hardening of Pharaoh, and the deliverance of Israel. Okay? The sovereignty of God, the hardening of Pharaoh, and the deliverance of Israel. So the first one here is the sovereignty of God. And what we're going to talk about here, the sovereignty of God, is the fact that the plague narrative, if you read it all the way through, shows forth very explicitly that this God reigns. He is the sovereign over all things. He has the power. His power is on display. He is in control and his will will be done. That's the story of the plagues. And when we read here at the beginning of chapter 7, we read there because basically you see in that first encounter in chapter 7 a basic framework that's going to keep working itself out through every single plague. You have Pharaoh's magicians humiliated. This is going to be repeated uh, a few times throughout the plagues. You even have the word swallowed there where it says that the serpent swallowed the other staffs. That word is only used one other place uh, in Exodus and it's at the Red Sea. When the, when the Red Sea, sw- we're told, swallows the armies of Egypt. Okay, so there the author's kind of given us that this is kind of a book. These are bookends of the judgment of Egypt that's happening here, here and be- between here and the Red Sea. But we also see very clearly in this opening passage what's ultimately at stake here. Okay, we don't know exactly what kind of serpent these were, what they would have looked like, but we do know. That the cobra was a very powerful symbol in ancient Egypt. Pharaoh himself usually wore um, a headdress that looked like a serpent. And so what we're being told from the outset is that when you read this account, you, you cannot make any mistake. This is not about Moses versus Pharaoh. It's not even about Egypt versus Israel. This is the God of the universe coming against all the deities, all the things that the people of Egypt worship. And he is going to show them that he is the only God in all of the world. John Currid says it's heavenly combat between God and the deities of Egypt. That's what we see throughout, um, throughout these plagues. And remember... This whole thing began, we saw a couple of weeks ago, this whole thing began when Moses and Aaron first go to Pharaoh. And you remember his question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, you read through the plagues and this is the answer. The God of all creation who wields creation itself as his tool of judgment. That is who this God is. Um, which is another thing that, this, that this, show, this opening part shows us is that all the plagues, in a sense, are a manipulation of nature. Nature and somehow is manipulated in each of these uh, plagues. God wages his battle by showing that the creation that Egypt worships does his bidding. 
The, the creation that they think is God, that they think gives them life, is actually only a tool in the ultimate giver of life's hands. And in fact, a, a lot of commentators say that when you look at all the plagues, this is going to be important in a minute, you can actually think of them as creation reversals. We've seen this creation imagery in Exodus so far, but remember, in the beginning, the earth teemed with creatures when God created the earth, and it was good. But in the plagues, you're going to see the earth start teeming with creatures and it's going to be destructive and violent. In the beginning, we saw and heard that let there be light at the beginning of Genesis. And now in one of the plagues, darkness is going to cover the land. In the beginning, water was the source of all life, but now it's going to be a source of death. And then the climax of Genesis 1 in creation is the creation of humanity, the climax of the plagues. The destruction of humanity and the death of the firstborn sons. So what's going on here? Again, how are we going to find our place in all this? Well, you'll see throughout the Old Testament, creation reversal imagery is used any time God's judgment is spoken of. Actually, throughout the whole Bible, you'll see things like the heavens will tremble or the mountains will quake or the seas will cry out. And we've seen these echoes of creation already in Exodus 1. Remember, we came and saw that Israel was multiplying in the land. The very thing that God told Adam and Eve to do at the beginning. And we saw Pharaoh going against that by mandating murder. And so this is what happens. Pharaoh and Egypt sin. And God's judgment on that sin through the plagues is going to tell us this. If we want to understand sin, we have to understand that sin is going against God's created order. Sin, by its very definition and its very essence, is going against The grain of the way God intended things to be. And that's how it shows up in our lives. God created all things from nothing. He brought order to where there was nothing. He brought order into the chaos of nothingness. He gave design where there was none. But then man by his sin comes and reintroduces sin. And reintroduces chaos back into the order. Introduces dysfunction to the design. And so what this helps us understand about sin is that sin is not merely doing what God said not to do. Sin is going against God's good design itself. It's going against the way things are supposed to work. And when you go against the way something works, the only thing that can happen is dysfunction and disintegration and destruction. And that's the plagues. It's not God just inflicting like, I'm just going to throw some fiery darts at these people and see what happens. No, it is the inevitable conclusion and consequence of their sin. That's the plagues. Paul, the Apostle Paul actually has a very personal example of this for us. In Acts 26, I find this fascinating. Three different times Paul recounts his conversion in Acts. And in Acts chapter 26, we read a detail. Paul recounts a detail that we don't get anywhere else. That Jesus on the road to Damascus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what is a goad? A goad was a very sharp stick that shepherds would use when they were herding sheep. If a sheep would get out of line, they would poke it so it would get back in the group. And so what Jesus was saying to Paul was, Paul, your opposition to me, your persecution of my people, your sin in doing this is running against the sharp 
point of the reality that I am the king and savior of the world. And if you don't stop, you're inevitably going to run yourself through. I would go so far as to say what Egypt and Pharaoh do in the plague narrative is they run themselves through. And they receive the logical, inevitable consequence and conclusion of their sin. So let's, this is the biggest point. God's sovereignty showing forth through these plagues. But let's bring this home. Try to begin bringing it home. Is it any wonder to you, if you've read through the Bible, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, Old Testament and New Testament, is it any wonder to you that God talks about obedience so much? Why? Because that's the only thing that will give you life. Is it any wonder that he responds so strongly to our disobedience? Because he knows our disobedience is our running headlong into destruction. And that's not what he wants for us. Again, our sin is not merely doing what we weren't supposed to do. To disobey God is to unleash the forces of chaos in your life. It's choosing chaos. It's inviting it. It's choosing disintegration. It's choosing dysfunction. It's inviting it into your life. Now look, some of you experienced disintegration and dysfunction in your life and you didn't do anything to get it there. But someone's sin did. In a sense, sin is a judgment unto itself. Hold on to that one for a second. Sin is a judgment unto itself. This is not God just hurling light bolts. Hey, you weren't good enough. Boom. No. Their sin, their rejection of God and their oppression of God's people was a judgment unto itself. Because in our sin, what we do is we violate the fabric of our own being. What we were created to be. How were we, we were created to live. That is sin. That is why it's bad. It's not bad just because God said no. No, so much deeper than that. Again, this is the longest one, but I want to give you some examples of this. We have to understand that sin is real and it wreaks havoc. Sin is real and it wreaks havoc. We can see this in a myriad of macro ways and micro ways. I was an economics major, so I had to throw that in there. But we can see this in a myriad of macro ways and micro ways. Let's go micro first. Think about this. If having friends or the right friends or having people like you or approve of you, if that is your God, it will inevitably lead to disintegration and dysfunction because you will alienate people. People will not want to be around you because of your neediness. It will inevitably show itself. If success and achievement, if that is what you live for, if at the end of the day, success and achievement, that is the end goal for you. Work is always going to be a slave driver for you. You will never enjoy it and it will never be enough. And you will never be able to understand what it is to enjoy the fruit of your labors. If your boyfriend or girlfriend or even eventually your spouse, I might add, is your identity. There's only two things that can happen in that scenario. You will either inevitably resent them for inevitably disappointing you. 
or they will resent you because of the crushing expectation. Sin wreaks havoc. It inevitably at some point wreaks havoc. Let's take it macro for a second. I feel like this has come up almost every week. I'm not trying. But look, racism is a really easy one to point to here. Okay, yes, we can all agree that we have made amazing strides over the last 50 years, can't we? But I really need you to be honest with yourself whether or not you can deny the open wounds and scars and fractures that we still daily experience because of that generational sin in our country. And that's coming from a white guy, y'all. We have to open our eyes to this and see it. I think the greatest example in our culture, and I, I don't think I can move on without addressing this one. I think the greatest example of our, in our culture today for all of us is sexuality. Look, our culture and we, we've done it too, have exalted sexuality to a place it was never intended to take. Sexuality was never intended to be a means of discovering yourself. Sexuality was never intended to be a means of finding yourself or fulfilling yourself. It was a good gift of God to us. There is a reason that it feels good and that you want to do it. Okay? But it was never intended to be the ultimate thing in our life. So our culture needs to hear that so that it understands what an endless journey it is to follow sexuality to fulfillment. But to us, as us Christians especially, Christians, especially if you grew up in the church in the southeast, you got to hear this. We also need to hear this. A heterosexual Christian marriage will not heal you of anything. If you are hoping and waiting and praying for marriage to heal you, please let's have a conversation. It's not going to do it because marriage was not given to heal you. Again, given for your good. Sex as created and designed was for one man and one woman in marriage to grow with one another in learning how to give each other a giving, sacrificial love in all things. Sex was given as a good gift to reinforce that. Sex in any form outside of that, in word, deed, or thought, is not giving. It's taking. Sex was never intended to be a take. Our culture understands this. This is what's behind the Me Too movement, is it not? How dare any of you men take anything from a woman? And I know if the statistics are true, women are not the only, but they're the majority. Men, again, this is the biggest point. I got to say this before we move on. Men, if you have led her or even pressured her, into letting you take her clothes off, you are not giving her anything. You're taking. And that is against the design itself and disintegration and dysfunction and destruction in your heart and in your relationships will inevitably follow. Ladies, if you're giving your body to him, you're not giving anything. You're taking 
You're trying to take intimacy. You're trying to take security because you don't feel like you have it any other way. If you're having sex with yourself, that sounds odd, doesn't it? You're not giving, you're taking. You're taking the immediate comfort and the immediate pleasure. Obedience to God, submitting to his lordship, to his sovereignty, that's what we were made for. And it is only there in a myriad of other realms as well in our lives that we find wholeness and order to what God intended for us and not the disintegration and dysfunction that sin inevitably leads to. And this is all too evident in Pharaoh's life. So this leads us to the next one. The hardening of Pharaoh. Look at verse 3 of chapter 7. This is not an easy verse. I wonder if you noticed it. Where God says, you're going to go do this with Pharaoh, you're going to tell him this, but... I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will not listen to you. And then we read on the first five plagues and every single one of them we read Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then four of the last five plagues we read that the Lord hardened his heart. So Pharaoh hardened his heart, but the Lord also hardened his heart. Let me quote to you a guy named David Plotz years ago did this blog called Blogging the Bible. And when he got to this story, listen to what he said. The key question is, why does God prolong the Egyptians' suffering? Why would God keep hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he can inflict yet another monstrous plague? Well, God tells us why. Listen carefully. For I have hardened his heart in order that I may display my signs among them and that you may recount in the hearing of your sons and your sons' sons how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I displayed my signs among them in order that you may know that I am the Lord. He goes on to say, what an appalling reason. He's causing the plague so that we can still tell stories about it. He's torturing the Egyptians so that we will worship him. What kind of insecure and cruel God murders, murders firstborn children so that his followers will obey him and will tell stories about him? Yes, Pharaoh is a monster and the Egyptians are brutal taskmasters. They deserve to be punished. But what's upsetting is that God takes delight in the plagues. He even performs the last and worst one himself. He wants the plagues to continue and to get worse and worse so that we will tell stories about him. And lo and behold, 4,000 years later, that's exactly what we do. You can kind of catch how he felt about this. What explanation is there for God's behavior is how he ends it. Who has an explanation? (laughs) Who wants to take a stab at it? I'll sit down. Why? Think about this. God knew that this was only going to end with the death of the firstborn. He knew it. So why the plagues? Why cruelly draw out all this violence and suffering? I want you to look at chapter 9. Look at verse 15. In verse 15, I find it fascinating that God is going to tell Pharaoh this. Look, Pharaoh, I basically could have showed up and wiped you off the earth without even a warning. What is God saying there? That's not what God did. What did he do? He brought warning after warning, consequence after consequence for not heeding that warning. And so at any point, you have to understand this part of the story. At any point, Pharaoh and any and all of his people could have turned and repented. But they didn't. That's 
what we read in the story. Pharaoh was responsible and he was judged for not turning and repenting. But we still have that phrase, God said, I will harden his heart. What do we do with that? I'm not saying that it's something that should just make sense, but I do want to offer this to you. The Bible does make clear. God is sovereign over all things, even the human heart. And man is 100% responsible for his actions. Is God sovereign or is man responsible? The Bible says yes. I'm never going to suggest to you that that should just make sense to you. But I am saying that is what the Bible teaches. That both are true. I want you to listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1. He says, The wrath of God is poured out against all ungodliness. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. In the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is what I mean when I, told, when I said sin is a judgment unto himself. When God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, you hear God saying, I'm not going to let Pharaoh believe. That's not what God said. It's not that he wouldn't let Pharaoh believe. It's that he actually gave Pharaoh what his heart really wanted. And y'all, that is the scariest part of it. He gave Pharaoh what Pharaoh really wanted and he judged him for it. Look, I want you to understand this. I want you to hear this about the plagues. It's not just supposed to be okay. You're not supposed to read this and go, well, that makes sense. They should have turned and repented. No. The plagues, God's judgment against sin, that should bother us. If it doesn't bother you, you're not paying attention. But you also have to understand this, that the plagues bother us ultimately because we have a problem with the truth of God's wrath against sin and God's judgment against sinners. That's the ultimate truth that's laid bare for us in passages like this. And that's what makes us uncomfortable. Because we want to know that there's maybe some other way out. The plagues show us, they say, look, this is what sin does. And by the end of them, it says, this is where sin leads. Death. Yet all the while, again, at any moment, Pharaoh and any of his people could have turned and repented. It's there the whole time. We're going to sing here in a second the hymn in Christ alone. And one of the lines in that hymn is, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. There was a hymn book publisher recently made a new hymn book. And they, they actually wrote to the authors of this hymn and asked them, would you mind if we changed the words, the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified? Y'all, the hymn writer said no. He said, no, I'm sorry, you can't do that. And you want to know why? Because it is true that on the cross, 
God's love was magnified. But the only reason that that is true is because it's on the cross that God poured out his righteous wrath in judgment of my sin. But he poured it out on his own son instead of me. And so his love was magnified. It's actually it's magnified so much that we can't adequately understand it. Alec Motier puts it like this. Jesus died bearing our sins in his body on the cross for that is what sin merits. He died saving us from the wrath to come because that's where sin leads. He died bearing our sins in his body because that's what sin merits. He died saving us from the wrath to come because that's where sin leads. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. His heart was hardened. And you know what that's telling you? Don't harden your heart. Don't. Let's look at the last one here quickly. With the sovereignty of God, the hardening of Pharaoh, finally here, the deliverance of Israel. When you read through, I'd encourage you to go through and read through the entire plague accounts. And we're going to actually look at the last plague by itself next week, the Passover. But when you read through the entire plague account, there's another thing that becomes glaringly obvious. The same power behind the plagues and behind this judgment is the same power that plague after plague moves and acts in protection of Israel. The calamity of the plagues doesn't affect Israel. When it's dark in the whole land, the land of Goshen where all these slaves dwell isn't dark. It's kind of an odd scene to picture in your head. Did you catch, look at 9.16 there. Did you catch this? For this purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so through the plague accounts, we have the powers of heaven and earth themselves unleashed. But what God goes on to say is that history itself is going to testify to my power, Pharaoh. Because history itself is even under my power. The story that I am going to write is going to look back on this and show exactly who I am to everyone for all time. So what story is that that God's telling us? I hope you're beginning to see and see become even more vivid as, as we get to the next, the final plague. That there is more at stake here than simply liberating an ethnic oppressed people, though that is certainly very much part of it. What's at stake ultimately is the whole world for all time knowing that this God is mighty to save. You know, and that sounds good. The preacher man said God's mighty to save. But we're talking about a story of violence and suffering and ultimately death. How do we make sense of that? Well, let me try. It's important to note when you read through the plague accounts, you'll see that the plagues don't just run rampant. They're controlled and every single one of them stops when God tells them to stop. And so it becomes obvious as you read through the whole account 
is that the cessation of the plagues is just as much a show of power as the beginning of the plagues themselves. Remember, I told you to term the plagues can be seen as creation reversals. Because remember, at creation, God creates out of nothing. He brings order to chaos. But because of sin and judgment on sin, chaos disrupts that created order. But in each ceasing of each plague, do you see what God's doing? He's restoring order to the chaos. Sin and its judgment brings chaos. But in the cessation of each plague, God is restoring order to the chaos. And so what you can see in the cessations of the plagues is recreations, new beginnings, life anew. Do you find it interesting? You skip thousands of years ahead. Do you find it interesting that it's a star in the sky that announces Christ's birth or that his first miracle He turns water red at the marriage of a man and a woman, just like from Genesis 2. Or that when he's in the the boat with his disciples during a storm, he just tells the seas and the winds to stop and they stop. Or that he healed the sick or he raised the dead or he gave hearing to the deaf and he gave sight to the blind. But you see what happened at his death, right? The whole theme of his public life and ministry actually gets turned upside down. There's a reversal again as darkness comes over the earth, right? Creation itself can't hold its light on Calvary as the son of God, the giver of life himself dies. The earth shakes, the rocks split. Creation itself signaling to us that the deliverance of God's people comes by the means of the punishment of his own son. As the one through whom not anything was made that was made, he dies. It's the ultimate creation reversal. Just like the plagues. But what is the empty tomb? Recreation. The empty tomb stands for us for all of history as a matter of fact. That a new creation has dawned. Is it any wonder that Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I just have to ask you to ask yourself, where are you tonight? Maybe you feel the dysfunction. Maybe you feel the disintegration. Maybe you even feel the death. It doesn't have to be that way. That is what the plague narrative tells us. It doesn't have to be that way. It's what it deserves. But God doesn't want it to be that way. And so the call of the gospel continually is, do not harden your heart, but let it be made new. Be a great story, wouldn't it? That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we pray.
that you would indeed give us life. Father, that we would view sin and the judgment it deserves with the proper weight, but that would not leave us, lead us to despair, but to the hope that in you we are made new. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.